0: all right well good morning everyone and welcome to great data mines we've got a great session today i'm gonna give everybody a few minutes to get logged in we had quite a few registrations so should be a really fun 45 minutes or so Hoping everybody's recovered from the holiday weekend. I know I'm running some laps. Physically or metaphorically? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm picturing the hamster wheel right now.
0: Right, right. Good morning, Laura. Welcome. Hey, Julie Burrows. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Julie. How are you? Great. I'm excited about this. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be a good session. I'm just going to give people a few more minutes to to, uh, come in. Great. And I'm going to monitor questions for you guys, okay? Oh, that would be awesome. Appreciate you doing that. Yeah. Everyone put them over in chat and we welcome collaboration too. So Mm -hmm. I'll get them. I'll deal them out to Matt and Mike once I start seeing them. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll just give a couple more minutes everyone and then we'll get started. Mike is there a story behind behind the two uh, red figures on the shelf behind you? Um, So my partner has a hobby of restoring uh, Latin American folk art. Ah okay. So those are all it's like almost a plaster of Paris kind of thing. Okay. Um, And uh, her family has been collecting them for years and when they get chipped or broken, she, she brings them to the hospital here. (laughs) (laughs) I have young kids just thinking of
1: the toy story movie. I think I want to say it was the second one when Woody gets, uh, he gets taken and to the, uh, the store owner and he's, he brings in the doctor that stitches them up and paints (laughs) them, shines them and all those things. So that's, that's,
0: that's the vision I'm thinking of right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. And and she really gets at it. Um, I, I'm surrounded by them. I've got another whole wall of them over here. Uh, I switch up every season.
1: <laughs> you feel like you're being watched? <laughs> oh yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. I think we're gonna go ahead and get started. So good morning, everyone. Welcome to Great Data Minds um, event series. Uh, today, we're excited and honored to have Matt Smith uh, from Microsoft. Matt's the chief data officer for the Western Enterprise region. Um, And uh, I want to welcome you, Matt. How are you today? Thanks, Mike. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm hanging in there. Like I said, metaphorically and physically, (laughs) running off the weekend. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about um, your data strategy and your ideas around how we need to, um, some of the things we need to take into consideration when we're trying to accelerate a whole data culture Around the organizations, um, and I, I'm excited that we're having this discussion because I, I, I still see a lot of enterprises struggling to get through it, and now it's even more exasperated because there's there's some serious latent demand. If you need to read any of the research being put out by Gartner or McKinsey or whatever, data and analytics is going to be a huge component of the di- digital strategy, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So, welcome, sir.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Adam.
0: And So um, let's let's go ahead and get started. So um, some of the areas of impacting a data culture, so I am seeing uh, a shift, a paradigm shift taking place and primarily prompted by some of the enabling technologies that are out there today. So the question of, do I still co-locate my data or not? What's your thoughts from your perspective?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, <clears throat> I think the emergence of, of um, some of the big data technologies really uh, opened up the opportunity to, I would say, shift the economics. And so the popular three or four V's, depending on which one you know which model you prescribe to, um, I think we're starting to see that materialize more, Mike. Um, you know, historically, a lot of companies, I would say, primarily operate their business on square data, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say anywhere in the range of 85% of uh, an organization's data is, is square or, or relational, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the challenges that, that you know, organizations are still encountering is it's really expensive um, to maintain relational data at scale. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where the, the paradigm shift of the cloud and uh, really helped that economic, right? And so what we saw was a decoupling of these expensive compute right. systems and the data that they they would manage, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Hadoop was really big at the beginning of of you know the cloud emergence, and and I would say we're 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 mainstream, um in in cloud adoption from an enterprise standpoint. So I think north of ninety five percent of all enterprises um, use some flavor of of Azure, which is Microsoft's public cloud service, right? And mm-hmm. so many of those are Doing things like managing data, right? Because that's that's one of the most cost-effective manners of of using the cloud. And so, we've seen this um, continued adoption of I would say data lakes, right? So a way that we can um, land just the raw data about our business into some look, you know, centralized repository that we can then do analysis on it. And, and the reason that decoupling is is important in that regard is. I don't need I don't need to pay for all this this computational processing when I'm not doing anything with my data so mm-hmm. being able to just kind of turn things on and off was was a huge value proposition with the cloud early on because I can I can do a, a process job that gives me some type of actionable result or something to go do and then I could just turn everything off and not have to pay for this massive system and I can still access that data with the compute turned off and so I think that is still a very Um, interesting economic factor for Mm -hmm. cloud usage of of analytics. And so I think that is one reason that we can do both, right? So kind of going back to your question is we can still centralize data in a lake, uh, but we don't have to centralize it in one system that is, you know, we continue to scale up or scale out and it gets more expensive because we have to run it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can also, you know, have these these multiple call it uh, business areas or functional units or, you know, dividing boundaries based on security requirements that allow us to isolate workloads. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and then ultimately, how do we make it actionable, right, is, is is the next step. And so I would say more now than ever have we seen this pro- proliferation of, of new data sources, additional, you know, uh, telemetry that is coming in. And, and when I say telemetry, it's really, you know, adjectives of a business process, right? And so descriptors of what's taking place. So kind of connecting it back to to your initial digital transformation, Um you know, tie in there. That's that's kind of the the meta goal is how how can a company track or monitor as much about their business processes as possible. So how do we create that? I think mean, uh, Satya has used the term digital exhaust, right? So how do we capture as many signals about our business processes possible? Because the more that we can capture, the more that we can monitor, and when we monitor, we can go make changes and when I make a change, I want to be able to see the impact of that change. So to me, that's, that's kind of the linchpin to, when I hear digital transformation, it's how do I digitize my business processes so I can capture data about them. Right. So when I take action, I can, I can monitor the impact there. So,
0: well, yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about the, you know, the, the, um, when you mentioned telemetry and then I'm tying it back to the, there's a higher, higher level of sophistication i'm starting to see around managing the work your work your cloud based workloads you know taking them up and down and uh before it was like oh my gosh i forgot that i was supposed to do that yeah and now it seems like it's almost being embedded into the framework where it's getting to be a little bit more automated for me you know Um, yeah or or trigger-based yeah
1: Yeah, so Fortunately, or unfortunately, um, th- through through my, my career path, uh, I predated cloud um, when it came from a technology standpoint, which really wasn't that long ago, but it feels like it was a long time ago. So I think. Oh, the- I haven't predated cloud. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Well, <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I came into Microsoft, you know, prior to Microsoft, it was all, hey, how many servers can we build? you know, we're going to capitalize and depreciate the cost of this asset over time. Um, you know, Microsoft would always push releases roughly every two to four years. So there's this massive upgrade project that has to take place, which pulls people away for months. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there lots of operational overhead, right? And and as as cloud started to hit mainstream, um, for, for us, it was how do I find a, a VM that I can go do this installation, but I'm going to still do this upgrade every two to two to four years, but I can turn my VM off and not have to pay for it. Right. But I can't access that data while it's turned off. Um, Since so your point, a lot of people, a lot of customers would forget, leave something running, get a big bill. And ultimately the cloud providers were being penalized for that. Cause like at the end of the day, we, yep. the whole the, the whole reason we provide those economics is, for companies to do that exploration, do these activities in that, you know, in an efficient way. Mm -hmm. And so you saw kind of a a gradual um, maturation that included creating policies or setting reminders, or, you know, now I can deprovision these these assets on a schedule Mm -hmm. and then based on a signal, I can reprovision them. So lots of on and off and reminders, right? So like we started with the reminders, and then we moved into the policies right so that would kind of start to manage it on on behalf um, but now we're in this fully elastic managed model right and so i can then go provision compute on demand based on hey someone refreshed a report they click refresh on a web page you know a connection's established a cluster is provisioned a result set is is returned and then the, you know the cluster is deprovisioned right and yeah. so so yeah to your point there's been a lot of maturity and growth in the the economics and the elasticity of what this cloud, the the cloud provides
0: yeah um, but yeah, yeah just, i think we're seeing that realization now that it is a more cost economic, you know it's, the yeah. economics are very positive yeah um, not to mention you know the the flexibility and the the agility that comes along with it so that yeah, i love that so let's go back to the comment around digital exhaust, because um, you know it's about you know trying to get as much digital uh, signals, whether it's event-based signals, of course, transaction evidence, right? Um, but we're also seeing a lot more need for sensing market rhythms and you know world event rhythms. I mean, you know, classic, right? We're, we're all yeah. coming off of being penalized by, um, but why is it you know? So we. We need to be able to identify this digital estate before we can even start talking about do I co-locate or not, but why is it so hard to get to the digital estate to understand it?
1: Yeah, I would say now is, is more, uh, a more volatile environment in, in just not <clears throat> using now independent of, of the pandemic, right? Um, because we're, we talk about cloud being uh, mainstream and enterprise, with that, like I, <clears throat> I'm i using the term cloud independent of infrastructure and data state, right? So we've seen emergence of companies be coming to market as a SaaS offering first, right? So in the past we'd, you know, a software organization would create a solution. It would get deployed on a server in a data center, it's licensed and all those great things. But now we're seeing these, in, the, in, the, in the, not even now, this isn't new, uh, but they're the proliferation of SaaS providers. Mm-hmm. Um, enables quick adoption, you know, low low cost to enter, um, you know, it, it de-risks companies' investments in products because it's a subscription service that can be turned off at any time. Mm-hmm. And so there's benefits. And then, you know, being that it's hosted as a multi-tenant solution, now these SaaS providers have the ability to monitor usage and telemetry and gather feedback in real time to go make innovations in their products all the time, right? So there's tons of benefits in SaaS, paradigm or the SaaS shift uh, of the market. But what that does is that, is that exacerbates data um, data proliferation and silos, right? Because when I go stand up a SaaS system, it's not integrated with my other business processes. So it's effectively a silo within my organization. And for me to go integrate it into a core business app, like an ERP or a CRM system requires significant labor um, to make that happen, right? And yeah. so- how do, we, how do we de-risk that? How do we get a, a holistic view of our ecosystem, which when we say a data estate, it's, it's our corpus of data, right? You've got to get your arms around all of the applications and business processes that are digitized mm-hmm. um, or not digitized for that matter and capture that and then start to make inferences and in, um, decisions about our business that is resulting from all that data. So to me, mm-hmm. that all of this, this proliferation of SaaS applications and the mergers and acquisitions that are taking place within an organization's landscape, it's, it's never going to get easier, right? I don't know that we'll ever see a huge consolidation of the SaaS market, right? We'll see mm-hmm. acquisitions being made by, you know, by Microsoft or by Salesforce, right, are probably kind of the two, two of the most um, well-known and companies. Amazon is big about making acquisitions as well. So that, that problem doesn't get any easier, um, you know, other than the, you know, the pattern of, of integrating that data. And so I think that's fundamentally probably the biggest challenge mm-hmm. for, for an organization, right? Cause it's one thing about capturing the data. It's another thing about integrating and, and unifying that data.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, and I
0: see, you now catalogs are getting a big play right now. Um, and, um, uh, not only because I want to get my arms around the, the data estate so I can do cooler things to optimize my processes to your opening comments, um, but I've got the likes of GDPR and CCPA and LMNOP and all the other regulations that are coming out. Yeah, that, it's that a new one. <laughs> that uh, um, are forcing me to get my arms around my estate because I need to know where the customer is, right? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that resurgence of the, the catalog world and, and the, again, the sophistication that's going into that. So, um, yeah, I think to your point, I mean, you're seeing you're seeing more
1: uh, more uh, compliance and regulation outside of just core finance or core, hip, you know, health privacy data, uh, privacy mm-hmm. data. Um, And so GDPR, CCPA, like you're seeing all of these these additional uh, regulations coming out that imply financial repercussions on organizations that are not diligent about managing their data state, right? Mm -hmm. So not only should we be doing that to keep the privacy of our customers or, you know, or members or employees information, but, you know, there's there's a financial hit that's associated with that. And, And to your point... Uh, catalog is just one aspect, but like that, great, I've got, you know, documentation about what's what data I have in my ecosystem and maybe who the, the steward is or process owner for me to request access to that. But mm-hmm. how do I get visibility within my ecosystem of, of who's accessing that? And how do I get visibility when, you know, a new system pops up or a new entry into my data state is created? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that, to your point, catalogs being hot. Microsoft had a, a data catalog back in, uh, gosh, I want to say 2012, 2013, um, and it. We we hadn't invested heavily in in that offering for some time until, uh, as of recent, we we just came public with a new service called Purview. Mm-hmm. And one thing that excites me about Purview is it's it's kind of, the, you know, a, a CDO's dream because you're not only allowing self-service crowdsourcing about the, you know, the data assets within your ecosystem, but it provides kind of like this fishing net where you can cast across your ecosystem and scan all the assets within your environment Mm -hmm. to start to, you know, take in the metadata about your systems, who, what, what systems exist. And then we use the, you know, a lot of the robust heritage of AI that we have in office to then classify that data. Right. And so we're using, regular expressions and, and machine learning models to say this pattern looks like it's an email address or physical address or a social security number. Mm-hmm. And so we can then apply classification to that data and allow you know information stewards or data management owners or uh, CDOs or compliance officers to query their entire estate and look for where's PII at within my ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really powerful because in the past, you know, you could do that, but you could only do it on like a declarative manner, right? I've got to put it into this catalog or into mm-hmm. the system, whereas we're kind of casting a net and we're, we're scanning, uh, versus, you know, it's more of that push pull discussion, mm-hmm. um, which is to me an exciting shift in terms of how we go to market. Well, and
0: thinking, you know, if, it, if anybody is responsible for implementing policies and techniques around ensuring governance Oh, it's, it's a dream, right? Yeah. I'm, not, I'm being the most arduous part of governance was trying to understand how do I govern and what is it that I need to govern? <laughs>
1: you know. Yeah. 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 you know what to govern until you know what's in your data state. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's, that to me is why the, the identification or getting your arms around your data state is so, mm-hmm. so important because you can only govern what, you know, and what you can see. And so, if there's all these shadow systems that are existing with critical, you know, business data that puts your company at risk to, you know, financial repercussions or, you know, public scrutiny about, you know, data leak, then, you know, that that to me, I think is, you know, a CISO or a chief data officer's worst nightmare is something that you don't, you can't see and you don't know about that mm-hmm. is being impacted.
0: Yeah. So let's go, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about how to achieve adoption. Um, you know, Julie and I do a lot of um, reading for uh, research firms. Uh, I think it was Gartner, it said only 21% of analytic products that are deployed ever even get adopted.
1: Mm-hmm. Right?
0: And it's even lower when you start to go look at the machine learning based analytic models, right? Yeah. So how do you achieve? When you and I talked earlier, you had some interesting concepts and I'd love for you to share some of those with our audience. How do you yeah. achieve adoption?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I if, to, first thing, I, I kind of, I, I would categorize analytics solutions separate from machine learning because I think machine learning in itself has operational challenges because mm-hmm. we ultimately need to figure out how do we integrate this into a business process or workflow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of general analytics adoption, I think part of what we have seen um, inhibit adoption is you're changing, you're moving someone's cheese, right? You're changing how they do a process because at the end of the day, when we think of an analytic solution, we generally think about a report or dashboard or some type of UI. And so when we introduce that, it could be the greatest most magical, uh, you know, wish granting device, that dashboard that's on a mobile device and it notifies you every time something changes. But at the end of the day, your business is operated by potentially thousands of frontline workers. And mm-hmm. so those frontline workers have been in the organization for five, 10, 15, 20, 50 years, right? Who knows how long they've been in the organization. But when you go and change the way they operate their day-to-day job, that puts a lot of, that that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of, you know, impact because mm-hmm. in the end of the day, they're accountable to, you know, helping customers solve problems, to selling products, to getting, this widget from this place to this place, like th- th- those are the business processes that are core to their function. And so, when you go and make a, a change that has a, a huge impact in terms of how they spend their time, mm-hmm. to me, that's that's the kind of the friction that's in the system around adoption. And so, how do we simplify that? Well, we do two things, right? We we try to create products and services that are familiar with the tools that they've been using for a long time to. You know, reduce the technical bar or the change bar to adopt. Mm -hmm. And you know, the second thing is we we make the insights seamless to their experience, right? So if they're using you know an ERP or a CRM or they're using you know a a customer support system, we can take and drive all of these game-changing, big data-driven, machine learning predictive models, and put it in the same screen that they're doing their job in every day, and so you know, I like to say it's change, uh, It's changing without changing, right? And so if I know that there's a little icon, or I know that I'm sorting a list based on some propensity score, um, and they're not changing the way that they do their job, and they're using the same interface they've been using for years, to me, that's, that's kind of the linchpin to the adoption curve, because we have to change as little as possible, um, you know, so that the adoption increases. There's some cultural things too, right? You kind of think about the bell curve of employees, right? You've got I, I'm not a statistician, but I want to say roughly 80% of an organization falls within the middle of that, that bell curve. And then you've got Mm -hmm. to, you know, get the tails. uh, Yeah. You've got those early adopters that are always going to be your change agents. They want to try, you know, try new things. They want to um, you know, do things better, and then you have the people that'll never change, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to experiment, you're going to try new things, you're going to get feedback from those change agents. But until you land that middle part of that bell curve, that's where that's where the acceleration and momentum comes in. So move the curve.
0: You got it. Shift it. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that implies then, if I'm going to get better adoption, I should be making sure I'm doing things that address the customers' needs. So how do we go about getting that voice of the customer captured?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one. Um, You know, I think in terms of we're, we're always actively soliciting our customers for feedback. Right. And so we, we have, you know, I would say from an adoption standpoint, we have those same customers that will adopt things early. And so what we'll see, what we do with the cloud is we're, we're very scrappy, right? And so we'll come to market with something that is very MVP. Here's the vision. Here's our strategy. This is the problem that we're, we think we're hearing And you know, Microsoft, we're our own, we're our own biggest customer, right? And so, you know, we have a whole strategy around one P equals three P meaning what we build internally is what we take to market through products, right? And so Mm -hmm. we have a, a lot of, you know, businesses within Microsoft that, Uh, our customers are in the business of as well, right? When you think about we manufacture devices, we create software, we, you know, until prior to the pandemic, we operated retail stores. So we're in the business, very similar businesses. Um, And so we're always actively soliciting feedback and, you know, taking a scrappy MVP approach to build something. Um, And the cloud allows us to be nimble and agile around how we, how we create and innovate, right? And so It's it is call it Kanban, call it agile, call it call it what you want, but it's mm-hmm. it a whole closed loop process of you know building something small, seeing if it if it works, if it doesn't work, throw it away and move on to the next thing. Right. Um, yeah, learn
0: from that and move on. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. The other thing awesome. is 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 kind of creating change programs and building brands around certain initiatives, right? And so, you know, historically you'd walk through the hallways and you'd see a, you know, a poster in the, in the coffee, you know, galley. Right. And, you know, you're asking, well, laser, what is that? And, you know, so like, you know, just kind of in advertising about emotions and movements and getting stewards and change agents that will, you know, advocate on your behalf, but also, you know, scale a movement through their network, right. Is, is another great way so that they can be you know, a champion or a sounding board that is also feeding signals back into in, into the program as well.
0: Right, right okay, cool. Um, we got a question here. Uh, this comes from MC. What's your take on API management with regard to tools and adoption? You know, I think maybe I'll pivot the question a little bit more to
1: a, just APIs in general, um, because I think to me, that is kind of that linchpin back to adoption, right? Mm. So think about, how do I change as little as possible? Well, very often, you know, an insight or an action or a machine learning model is manifested through an API call. And so, you know, how do I integrate that system through those insights via an API? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I would say that we still have a lot of customers that run non-modern platforms, right? So you think about you know, the, the, just the Herculean effort that would require to replatform off of an SAP, for example. Right. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's a heavy lift to go integrate an, e, an API into SAP, uh, you know, but for me to move into a modern platform, that's also a huge effort. And so, right. you know, we can only do the best that we can with what we have. And so I think in that scenario, you know, we, you know, we tend to kind of rely back on batch data-driven um, you know processes to, to drive that so we may not be able to you know do real-time integration per se but you know we can plan accordingly so we might have an overnight job that is pre stack ranking you know someone's task list for the next day using a model um, mm-hmm. but we're using back-end systems to do that right so it's it's a little bit more rigid but um, you know so I think the the question of API management is a relevant one because to me, that's kind of that catalyst
0: of, of changing without changing. Um, yep. Yep. I think it also, um, I, I, I am a firm believer that when I'm defining my data products for the purposes of enabling analytic products and or, um, you know, helping optimize some business functions, the definition of that data product should always include API services to that product, Right. Um, And back to your scrappy MVP, which I love that, you know, minimum viable product, being able to roll out a a good architecture that's microservices oriented, um, I think is an incredibly important component for us all to consider when we're building data products.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at it, I mean, our core, our core platforms for data, we have really two, right? We have Power BI, which, you know, that kind of goes back to, boy, this feels a lot like Office. It's moved really quickly. We decoupled it from Excel so that we could move faster. Um, and now it's, you know, it's been, I think we're in over 21 years in a row where we're a leader in the magic quadrant in, in BI and analytics, right? So the the acceleration curve of adoption of Power BI has been unbelievable. Uh, but, you know, core to Power BI, you, you know, it's, you look at what we did is we, we took the, the analytics professional used to require about four functions, right? You had to, you had to access the data. You had to format the data. You had to optimize the data. You you know, you create metrics and visualize. And so pre power BI, you know, we had four different products albeit under a SQL server umbrella that required their own server, their own configuration integrated well together, but it was a heavy lift. Right. And it was very rigid. So we took those all and put them into one desktop tool. Right, then yes. we provided the entire backend as a service. Um, but you know, along that notion is how do we adopt AI, right? Because we know that data science requires its own skill set, its own knowledge. And mm-hmm. so, you know, part of back to that a- API discussion is we have all these pre-trained AI solutions that we call cognitive services. And so, if I need to do sight, vision, um, you know, sound sentiments, you know, any descriptor about the data we have an API that you can just hook into. And so when you think about the audience of Power BI, it's someone that is able to work with Excel, right? So they're not necessarily a data professional that is writing complex SQL statements. So how do you enable someone that can write macros and, you know, create pivot tables? How do you enable them to call a machine learning model, right? So, you know, there there's these gaps we need to address and so yeah by being able to just register, hey, I want to call this API to get sentiment about the data that's in this field or this Mm -hmm. row, um, you know, we have to create very simple UIs to facilitate that process. Because for us, it's all about taking game-changing, latest, greatest technology innovation and making it uh, consumable by the masses, right? We're always thinking
0: about usability and simplicity across the platform. Yeah, cool. So you talked about digital uh, transformation early on as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I I continually read and hear about digital transformation and I scratch my head and I say, I wonder what they really mean by that. So yeah. can you double click on digital transformation? And tell me what that means from your data strategy, data strategy perspective. Yeah. That was a mouthful. <laughs> no, that's right. Good. Uh, I don't know. I mean, can we... Can we still call it a
1: buzzword? I don't know. I just yeah. yeah. I,
0: uh, unpack that, Matt. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so I, I kind of I alluded to it earlier today. So digital transformation to me is it's about being able to to track and measure everything about a business process as 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 to the extent we can, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about traditionally um, we would have these kind of large applications to do things like manage inventory and supply chain. Right. But they're not like we've seen uh, within the last two weeks, the impact that one freight ship can have on a global supply chain. Yep. And so that's not captured in your ERP anywhere. And you can't, you know, if you don't, if you're not watching the news, you're not going to know that the inventory that you have in your warehouses are now not sufficient for the next month. And you're probably going to go three to four to five weeks before getting your next shipment of inventory Mm -hmm. as a result of the Suez Canal. So like, that's a great digital transformation discussion because it's how, how am I capturing as much telemetry at every single point within my global supply chain? If we're using that example, Mm -hmm. Um, so as, as quickly as possible, so that when that happens, I know that I can purchase from a supplier or distributor, or I can move product from one retail location to another real, You know what I mean? Those mm-hmm. are like those are the great examples. And if I can't measure, then I can't track. And if I can't right. track and, and make decisions, I can't see the repercussions of those decisions as well. And so more now than ever, um, not only is it tracking within our own system, but it's also how can I identify and subscribe to data that I don't own and that I don't create right. because to me that go figure, I'm going to say digital transformation is, is all about data, right? Go figure. I yeah. asked in that discussion, <laughs> but it, but it all comes down to how do I, you know, how can I track as much as possible so that when something changes or I make a decision, I can see the impact of that decision. So then I can go and track and monitor the repercussions of that. So it's, it is that the data supply chain about a business yeah. um, because we, we can do this now. And many companies are doing this now. And it's just a question of how do I start with one business unit and continue to fan out across those business units. And, and kind of going back to your earlier question, getting user feedback, what are the biggest revenue generating business processes within my organization and how do I prioritize my transformation efforts to those, right. Mm -hmm. Um, That we're driving impact. And so when we think about data monetization as a topic, you know, that, that is a, that's a way of monetizing your data, right. Uh, You're not selling your data, but you're you're using your data to optimize your operations that ultimately will, increase revenue or you know um you know decrease costs as well mm-hmm. so hopefully i unpacked that a bit but you did
0: you I'm, done it, you unpacked it really well because um the more focused i am around digitizing the telemetry around my applications the more i can enable my agility as an organization to be able to start pivoting or persevering right and yeah. it, if, if companies are not seeing this after 2020 and now the Suez Canal and how it impacted in an, in an entire world, every industry, every individual, yep. and, and start to wake up and realize we got to get agile and we got to be able to act very quickly. We need to constantly monitor where, if I got high revenue generating processes, where are they at risk right now? Yep. I need to have a sense of urgency around it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's we Suez Canal is the most recent, but within the last year, right, we saw a, a pretty large catastrophe happen in the te- you know Texas region with weather conditions and power out oh, yeah. right huge impact to you know the nation and and you know that that region of the, the country pandemic, right? Just social distancing alone having impact on folks that are staffed, staffing and manufacturing facilities. So I'm still manufacturing product, but I'm doing it with, with the skeleton crew so that, you know, I don't have to shut down completely. So like, you know, these, these huge events are, they're not going away. Like you, you, you can't predict these things to happen. And so it's, it is necessitating agility, which is, you know, creating the, you know, it's not, it's the need. It's not even the, the wants to transform because, so many companies have been unfortunately impacted by, by the pandemic and have gone out of business as a result of, you know, things that were out of their hands, right? And how do we, how do we put a plan in place to mitigate that risk to the extent that we can, Mm -hmm. Uh, we have, we have to get a, you know, more real-time view on everything that impacts our business. Yeah.
0: Yep. And, and that kind of brings me to another thought. if I'm going to get on the, this digital transformation thing and I'm going to democratize my day and I'm going to get agile, digit, um, acting on um, digital exhaust, if you will, what's inhibiting that cultural change? You know, we hear about the data culture and, and we're, not, we're not enabling a data culture way. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think skill sets
1: is probably the one that jumps out to me. Um, you know, you've, you've got latest, greatest emerging technologies that are created to solve a problem. And so I now have to skill a workforce, reskill a workforce. So it's, you know, for us to, you know, there's, there's options, right? There's training. Um, you're gonna have those change agents, those folks that are always pushing the curve and looking for new ways of solving problems. Mm-hmm. So the question is, is how do we scale that, right? How do we, how do we grow that, that mm-hmm. audience? Um, we do it through education, right? So, you know, institutions, universities will educate the next generation workforces on the relevant industry skill sets. Mm-hmm. But, you know, be, you know, data science is a great example there, right? So every college institution at this point has probably likely a data science program. Mm-hmm. They're fundamentally grounded on, you know, Python and R kind of the most well-known technology or languages that are used to, to facilitate that process. And then they have these business and statistic courses to kind of give folks the the domain context to go have a meaningful business conversation. So, so skilling universities, right. And then training is another way. Um, and then for Microsoft, one approach that we do is we try to um, use skills of today, but back it by the next gen, you know, technology and platform. So great example, uh, our second platform, biggest platform in the data state is Azure Synapse. Um, it's a suite of products that is a cloud scale, big data and analytics platform uh, as a service runs on our cloud. Um, mm-hmm. We have a number of off options that just for, call it data wrangling alone, where we have uh, a, a number of options, right? You can, you can you know, really what's changing the data the data wrangling ecosystem is Spark as a technology because it does a really good job of, of you know, scaling from a performance standpoint, um, data engineering tasks. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't, I'm eliminating the need to, uh, to manage big, you know, create and manage big clusters and, you know, logically partition my data across the compute that it's going to run against. So mm-hmm. what we do, our approach to that is, okay, we've got this phenomenal technology that is Spark that does a great job of, of sharing, you know, data sets across a large compute environment, but we can't go ask all of our customers to learn Scala or Java or all these very advanced, low level technologies to take advantage of that. So what we do is we build services that sit on top of those game changing technologies that make it way easier to adopt. So something mm-hmm. like uh, Azure Data Factory is a visual drag and drop approach to um, to do data transformation. So mm-hmm. we can allow users and in, in, uh, developers to have an Excel-like experience that allows them to pivot and transform and filter and do all these great things with data. Under the covers, it's executing against a Spark runtime, but the front end is this nice visual drag and drop. Mm-hmm. And, so you know we can then insulate our customers from taking dependencies on very low level technologies mm-hmm. and Microsoft can kind of carry the weight of that. So they're getting the, the greatest capabilities mm-hmm. of what Spark brings to the table and uh, cluster management and elastic pricing, but they're just using a Power Query interface if you're familiar with Power BI or they're using an SSIS interface if you're familiar with SSIS as an mm-hmm. user um, to get that benefit.
0: Yeah, so again, these low code and no code enabling platforms yep. are are helping us not have to be so dependent on specialized skills. And and we can right. get we can get the scale, which I love. I mean yeah, I'm I mean, a big forget, fan
1: I mean we're we're a software organization as well. So we've got we've got to, you know, adopt these game-changing technologies because that's where the industry is taking us. There's problems, there's fundamental problems in in all these approaches. So how do we Mm -hmm. overcome those approaches? So, um, you know, we build development tools for other software companies as well, right? And so not only do we normalize, do we need to provide a user interface to drag and drop to use Spark, but we also have to create professional developer tools for other development companies to take advantage of of Spark, as an example. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the benefit we have here is we can, we can provide an offering for those those data professionals or sophisticated data scientists because we have to do that internally for ourselves as well, and then we bring it to the masses. Let's, I think we the metric I saw is we hired over twenty five thousand employees just during the pandemic alone. So like we have a lot of information workers mm-hmm. that are not professional data scientists either. So we've got this nice mix of both personas. Mm-hmm automatic you know um fundamentally ground on this grounded on the same platforms internally behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. And and it, when we we're talking about the culture, you mentioned education. You guys do quite a bit of focus around that edu- mm-hmm. education. Is that where data literacy starts to come into play? Yeah, I think th- th- to me, data literacy is
1: is kind of a, a byproduct of adoption, right? Or mm-hmm. maybe adoption is a byproduct of data literacy. I'm not sure it's the chicken and egg discussion there, but mm-hmm. um, I think one of the biggest things is, is maybe having a an executive a executive sponsorship, right? So many organizations will make gut-based decisions about, you know, uh, how they're going to approach a market or or you know adjust a process. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we become as educated as possible about that decision? Well, we have to capture more data about that mm-hmm. business process. Kind of comes back to digital transformation. Um, but when you have an executive that leads by doing, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're the ones sponsoring what, what is an acceptable decision and how did we come to that decision? How we do that at Microsoft, it hasn't happened overnight, but even within our field sales operations, everything from an individual seller Or specialist, all the way up to the CEO, uses the same Power BI set of dashboards and analytics. So, not only are we, you know, we've got the executive support. So, Satya looks at those same reports and dashboards, our, you know, area leads do, um, our specialists do, and they all get fed from the same, you know, CRM system where we will, you know, track and monitor consumption or adoption or, you know, revenue opportunities that we forecast. And so, when you just centralize on the same platform, you've got one version of the truth. We're all looking at the same screen and dashboard. No one has a different number than somebody else. And so to me, that's kind of fundamental to data literacy is it it is kind of this adoption um, adoption and literacy discussion that come together. But and, it has to be, it has to be, you know, having a visible sponsor to say, this is how we're going to do this. And if I'm not getting this, let me show you how we get it from the system that everybody is working on. Because when we go and create our own dashboards and, and spreadsheets and reports, we now are not talking the same language on the same set of numbers. And that's what causes confusion and, and inaccuracy
0: around biz, uh, business decisions. Yeah, and, and the leader's role. Um. lot of people are talking about change management right as a part of uh helping with change resistance um but i think the more important um consideration is change leadership those leaders have to exemplify the goodness in change right Uh, yeah Yeah. yeah and learn it learn it all is a term that we we use heavily
1: right it's you know, something that Satya said very early on, he, he came on shortly after I started at Microsoft and he's very empathetic as, as a human being um, mm-hmm. and he brings that to the role. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the term he said is, how do we how do we go from know-it-alls to learn-it-alls? Because, <laughs> you know, we're never gonna, you know, there's always gonna be something we don't know, right? And so how do we break down kind of the, uh, the stigma and the animosity around who's the smartest person in the room when we've got a lot of type A personalities. And so we have to do that with, with empathy and compassion, and we've got to, you know, allow people to have a voice. And so another big push for Microsoft as a company is actively being a, you know, diverse and inclusive in our hiring process, because we know that differing points of views um, brings the, the constructive tension to question decisions and look at things more holistically. And so it all kind of brings back into that that culture of, of learning it all.
0: Yep. Ask Satya if we can use that quote in our uh, <laughs> edu- in our human sex section. I love that. Um, I think we have coffee in about 10 minutes. So I'll just, I'll bring
1: it up in our chat. Okay, there you
0: go. Um, we have one question. Uh, you may have already answered it, but what type of data analytics will drive adoption in the next three to five years? Um, is it gonna be OLAP or TP? How does this Affect data modeling in the future, maybe more NoSQL. Wow, that's
1: yeah. a that's a complex topic. I, I think, um, I think we're going to see more uni- uh, diverse data platforms. Right, you're already, you're already seeing this with if you're following Azure Synapse or even Power BI. We're kind of um, we're giving the ability to process data in the most effective way for the use case. Mm-hmm. And so you know, NoSQL we're seeing emerge heavily in modern applications where we know there's a you know, high concurrency or global nature that we need to enforce consistency. And then we're developing platforms to allow analytics on top of that. So you know, NoSQL platforms, as an example, um, historically are, are optimized for high concurrency read-write operations. Um, may not be as optimized or tuned for analytics. And so in the past, we'd say, hey, plumb it out and put it into a big data platform to do analytics. Um, the way we're pivoting to that is we're creating these um, basically Synapse Link is if you if you look up uh, MC, if you look up Synapse Link, is a great paradigm shift that we're doing. And so what we've done is we've put an analytical index on top of NoSQL data. And then for customers, we're managing the synchronization of the data. So you don't re- doesn't require ETL to, to do that. But now we're giving, uh, you know, sub-second query responses for analytical scans, aggregation queries uh, on top of that NoSQL data. And so when we look at not everybody can use Cosmos DB, um, maybe it's a packaged application. So, you know, the. The plan is is like how do we take that model where mm-hmm. we're getting the operational and analytic, we call it HTAP, hybrid transactional analytical processing, and you know, sp- fanning that out across the surface area of relational database engines, so um, or even NoSQL engines, and so you know, how do we put that on top of a SQL Server database because we know that's probably one of the most Globally adopted platforms. So the same concept applies. And if you're familiar with uh, SQL Server, we've had these um, in memory clustered column store indexes, right? Mm-hmm. And so Taking the management aspects away from customers who no longer have to rebuild indexes and update statistics we will manage that for you because we can do that within our, our control plane in the mm-hmm. cloud. I think that's an interesting paradigm shift because it is creating that bridge between OLTP and OLAP, but we no longer are forcing customers to create this complex synchronization pipeline process to manage that. Uh, when we run it as a service in the cloud, it's just something you click on, and we're we're provisioning compute and all that that synchronization behind the scenes for our customers.
0: I absolutely love what has happened in our industry in the last seven years. Yeah, it's just it's An exciting time. such exciting yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. So when um, when I was at Dell, uh, we Dell and Microsoft, of course, partner a lot. Yeah. And, and I remember and, and recall a lot of thought leadership and industry research coming out of Microsoft. Um, you, can you tell us about that? And did, does that research get made available out to the public?
1: It, it does, yeah. So uh, one great example of, of that is um, we created a new SQL engine called Polaris, a Polaris Runtime, I think is what it's called, um, and so that was the research that Microsoft did internally to create our latest uh, Azure Synapse serverless data warehouse. So we now have a data warehouse that is pay per query. Uh, we actually have a, a free promo right now that we're giving away 10 terabytes per month of data processed through this engine for free through July. So for those listening I encourage you to take a look at that mm-hmm. um, but all that research has been published right so we've got a lot of thought leadership in terms of um, you know the cloud scale requirements is the diverse data types that need to be addressed so msr microsoft research uh you know has been we've that's been an organ part of our organization for roughly 30 years at this point mm-hmm. we've got over a thousand researchers in the organization eight different labs across the globe uh, we account for 22,000 white papers, 4,000 patents, like lots, lots of smart people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of that hard work is, you know, being done to simplify the experience for our customers. So we want to give these, these innovative game-changing uh, capabilities to our customers in a way that they can actually adopt and, and digest it. So those, that's the engine that feeds into the Microsoft
0: products and services
1: that are built every single
0: day. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right, sir. We're um, coming up on top of the hour. So if, if you had one final critical takeaway to leave everybody uh, with, what would that be?
1: Get started. Yeah.
0: Get, get started. started. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I think uh, to me, there, there's so much focus around what tool to use or, you know, how can we get that data? There's, there's a lot of focus and, and angst up front in a data project, Mm -hmm. um, that prevents us from adoption. And so the reality is, is with, with the cloud, we can try something within a day or two. Mm -hmm. We can figure out if it's yielding fruit or not. And then if it's not, we throw it away and move on to the next one. So like, it's, it's more about how do I get the velocity and agility with our business processes? Mm -hmm. And, you know, can I rely on a, on a cloud scaler like Microsoft to provide the platform for me to build on? And so get started. I've mentioned Yeah, the free quantity offer that's available. And then Mm -hmm. the Azure Purview piece, we also have uh, free scanning of Power BI and SQL free um, in preview as well. So lots of stuff you can do right now without
0: even uh, paying a cent. Cool, very cool. All right, well, Matt, thank you very much, sir. Incredible uh, dialogue we had today. I really appreciate your thoughts. And uh, just to let everybody know, sorry, Julie, go ahead. I said great job, you guys. Thank you, thank you. And just a reminder for everyone, hit uh, Great Data Minds events. Uh, We've got some great events coming up. We've got our Standing Up a Data Ops Practice uh, workshop series, and that we have uh, another round of our Path to Modern Analytics executive workshop series coming up. So please check that out. Um, And thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Matt, sir. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the time. Yep.
1: Yeah, likewise. Take care.
0: Bye-bye, everyone.